This is part three of the uh, uh, teaching that I'm doing on uh, Jesus, Lord, Liar, Lunatic, and then the tagged on to that is Legend. And for the last two times that we were together, we were um, looking at the issue of legend and trying to basically refute that because before I can even get to addressing the lunatic or liar aspect, I wanted to uh, address the legend aspect that's, uh, that skeptics like to throw at Christians. And so the, the, the point of this, uh, the essence of what this teaching is saying is this, is that Jesus didn't leave room to be called a good man. He didn't leave room. The claims that he made, the statements about himself, the fact that he said, I am the only way to the Father. He made some serious claims. And he didn't leave room for him to be considered just a good guy. Because, again, we'll get into this next time. We're going to actually have one more teaching so you guys want to hear from other elders, you're going to be sick of me by the time we're, we're uh, through this. But this is going to, there's going to be one more installment, which is going to have to be later in April. So, um, but the point is that we want to be able to make a defense. And one of, the, one of the things that I've encountered in my conversation with people is people just want to say, well, Jesus was just a good guy, but he wasn't God. And he didn't leave room for that. So we're going through that, but... First, we have to address this issue of the fact that um, because of the fact that from the events of the cross and the resurrection to the writing of the New Testament, there's a time period that, um, that is, le- the, the liberal uh, skeptics will say was potentially 100 to 150 years before the New Testament was written, but Christian scholars all agree, most Christian scholars agree, uh, that the New Testament was completed before 70 AD. And there's a lot of internal evidence that, is, uh, that, that proves that fact. Um, but we're going to get into today, we're going to talk about, um, if you go to the next slide, i got to get mine to respond. Uh, these are the the arguments that we're using to establish the fact that the legend there was no time for legend to develop, and um, the disciples, as they had received and seen uh, what what happened with Jesus, they used uh, the, the Palestinian Jews were oral people. Their information was passed on orally. That was what was preferred for communication as opposed to written, which is what we're kind of oriented towards today. So they, early on, they were, uh, they were proclaiming the gospel in what's, what we determined was an informal but controlled way. In other words, the core of the essence of what the message was had to remain the same, but there could be and was different perspectives uh, from the four different writers of the Gospels. Uh, three of the Synoptic Gospels uh, shared from different uh, points of view and focused on different aspects, but the core of the message remained the same. 
uh, memory plays a tremendous part in, uh, in the uh, communication of this information. And the uh, Palestinian Jews were very, very uh, proud of their ability to memorize large portions of scripture. Like I said before, a young 14-year-old Jewish boy could have the entire Old Testament committed to memory. I mean, that's, that's quite a, a feat to be able to do that. But this was part of that culture at the time. Um, we talked about the value of eyewitness testimony and the fact that these people saw the, the events that Jesus did. They saw the miracles. They listened to his teachings. They followed him for three years. They, now, th- there's one aspect that I didn't really point out, but when I say that they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, does that mean that they were standing there when Jesus rose from the dead? How many people actually witnessed the, uh, the resurrection? Zero. Nobody was standing at the tomb. Remember, they were all distraught. They thought their Savior was gone. And nobody was standing at the tomb waiting for him to rise from the dead. But they saw him after he was raised from the dead. And so what, what I'm saying is when the eyewitnesses, they were eyewitnesses to his being raised. They walked with him. They saw him for 40 days, as we've talked about in in the beginning of Acts, he was, he was making many proofs to them to prove that he was alive. So uh, their testimony was valuable. And in fact, as we, as we know, uh, 11 out of the 12 men died martyrs' deaths professing what they saw. It's one thing to die believing a lie and being deceived. Because people have done that. They've died for a cause and they were deceived in their cause. It's a different thing to know you're lying and to die for that lie. That's, that's, that's very, very, very rare that somebody would do that. And these men went to their deaths, and some of their deaths were horrible deaths. Uh, and they were professing that they saw Jesus resurrected. And remember, that was the main focus of the preaching early on in, in Acts. Was the, whole, the main focus was the resurrection. They witnessed something that has never happened before. And so they were, they were um, impacted by that to a point of their lives were completely changed. And there's a significant um, fact that these men who were cowering on one day became bold proclaimers the next because of what they saw uh, and were impacted by the resurrection. So continuing on, what I want to also show is that during this period of time between the events of the, res- the, the crucifixion and resurrection <coughs> and the writing of the New Testament, creeds developed. And they're like, think of it as like gems that are scattered throughout the New Testament. Um, so I want to talk about those today, and we're going to talk also about the manuscripts that we have. The, the actual manuscripts, handwritten documents of the New Testament and how many we have and so forth. So, um, so here's some questions. How early were these creeds formulated? Now, a creed is a formal statement of what Christians believed. So some people like to say that these creeds, these, these beliefs, I should say, developed late, that, that the, the, the supernatural Jesus was actually added on later. And, and that he was just a man of history, a natural man, 
and that the, Bible, the, the Jesus of history is different than the Jesus of the Bible. That's what they try to contend. And, of course, we disagree with that, and we have proof. And these creeds are one of those proofs. The fact that these creeds developed very early. Um, what facts did the earliest Christians report concerning Jesus in his, in his initial years after his crucifixion? And what did the earliest Christology consist of before the writing of the New Testament? So what, what did people believe about Jesus? Did they believe he was just a man? Or did they believe that he was God in the flesh? So we're going to look at that. They're, they are the most promising means of describing the nature of Christian thought before the writing of the New Testament, and they preserve some of the earliest reports concerning Jesus from about 30 A.D. Now, there's in history, and I'm sure Tim will agree with this, that when you study, um, there's two dates that are given for the crucifixion, either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. It just depends on where you stand. I don't know where you stand on this, Tim. 30 A.D. So... Um, so these creeds began at between 30 A.D. and 50 A.D. Um, they first appeared verbally, uh, and later they were written into the books of the New Testament. So in one sense, this material is considered, it's not considered extra-biblical, because it's in the Bible. But these creeds were incorporated in Scripture, but they existed before the New Testament was written. And these creeds were sayings that the Christians developed to remember and to proclaim what Jesus did and who he was. There, there's two common elements in these creeds that are focused on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a, another set of elements that are, are focused as well, and that is his humanity and his divinity. So there's, they're juxtaposed against each other that he came in the flesh, but he was God in the flesh. So there's this, this, um, these truths that are early on proclaimed about um, Jesus and, and who he was. The most important creed, I would say, is this creed that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to turn there, um, we're going to look at this. Now, skeptics, remember I, I've talked about this gentleman named Gary Habermas, and he studied the New Testament, and he wrote his, his thesis for his dissertation for his uh, doctorate degree on the resurrection. And the, his panel told him that he could reference the Bible, but it couldn't be his main source. And so what he did, and this, is, this was a, a clever way to approach this, was that he took the scriptures that the most liberal scholars accepted, and he proved the resurrection from that. And one of the things that these liberal scholars, and most scholars that study the New Testament these days, are really enamored with Paul. They are really impressed with Paul. Now, Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament uh, letters, but they they only attribute seven to him. Okay, but First Corinthians is among those seven, and contained in First Corinthians. So, so in other words, we even can include the skeptics in this in this this creed development and in 
the fact that it, it shuts them up, basically, <laughs> is what I'm trying to get at. So let's just read the creed. Let's read what, he sa- what it says here. It says in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, it says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, and listen, look at the, 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 the way, the syntax of, this, of this, these next few verses. He says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. That's the creed. Now, Paul uses some official uh, rabbinic language when he's talking and writing to the Corinthians. This, for I delivered what I received. That was the language that indicated that they were transferring official controlled information. That was the way it was, it was um, spoken and, 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 and communicated. We see this as well in another verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.23 with the, inst- the Lord's Supper. He says to the Corinthians, What I received, I delivered to you. And so it's, it's very technical, rabbinic language saying that I passed on exactly what it was that I received and I'm giving it to you. So in this creed, we see just a simple proclamation of the fact that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was rose, and that he appeared to individuals and to groups and to a large group at 1.500. Sorry, I'm going backwards here. So when did Paul receive this creed? If he, if he was writing to the Corinthians. Okay, now, we, we, we can kind of backtrack a little bit on the dating here. Um, it's estimated that Corinthians, 1 Corinthians was written somewhere around 55 A.D., but he says he's telling the Corinthians that he delivered to them what he received. And um, so he had visited Corinth somewhere around 51, 52. Now we know this because when he was in Corinth, he got arrested by a guy named Gallio. Well, guess what? Gallio was only a proconsul in the area of Achaia from 51 to 52. So if he arrested Paul, that means that Paul had to have been in the area at that time. So that's basically when Paul was visiting uh, in Corinth. So we're working our way back. So do we see a 150-year gap here? If he's writing in 55 and he had visited in 51, we're working our way back towards 30 AD. Okay, most likely he received this creed when he visited Peter and James in 35 AD. If you turn to Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 I want to start at 15 i got to put my glasses on. 
Paul says this in, in Galatians 1.15. He says, But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, this is the road to Damascus, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Saudi Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now when it says that, that he says that he went up to Jerusalem three years after he got saved, when he visited with Cephas is probably when he received the creed. The word visit there is, this word is only used once in the entire New Testament. It's called hysteresi. And it's where we get our word history. But this really means that he interviewed Peter. He got information from Peter. But it doesn't mean he was trained by Peter. Because he had already received and been trained by Jesus. But he's interviewing Peter and James. Now he spent 15 days with him. And I, I can imagine, do you think they were just talking about the weather for those 15 days? They were comparing notes. This is what Jesus said to me. This is what he showed me on the road to Damascus. And Peter saying, well, this is what we saw. This is what we experienced. This is what the Lord showed us. This is what he taught us. 15 days. How would you like to have 15 days with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus? I think any of us would, would, would go for that. So they spent 15 days having these conversations. So the fact that Paul probably received that creed somewhere around 35, the creed had to exist before Paul received it, right? So now we're back from 30 to 35. That's five years. We're closing the gap even further. So Paul, it's highly likely. So the, the thing that's important here too is that this creed then had to be pre-Pauline. That's important because skeptics will say Paul invented the supernatural Jesus. Some skeptics will say that. But here, this creed about him being raised from the dead existed before Paul was ever saved. Does that make sense? So we're working our way back towards the cross here. So um, by most people's estimation, Paul was saved somewhere around 32. Now if you can go to the next slide, it's going to, okay, it's a timeline. So you can, he visits 1 Corinthians in 55. He wrote, I mean, he wrote it in 55. He visited them in 51. He got saved in 32, and he went to visit Peter and James in 35 AD. So we've gotten all the way back now. If Paul was saved, it's possible that he heard the creed when he got saved. I, we don't know. Now we also know this. He was present at the stoning of Stephen, right? We talked about this on, at the discussion uh, last week. He was present at the stoning of Stephen, and he heard Stephen's message. So he may have been aware of some of the gospel uh, claims and the claims about Jesus 
at that time, that's why he was so riled up about getting rid of these Christians, stopping the sect. So we've been able to, with just this one creed, close the gap all the way down to a couple years. Now, when you're looking at the ancient history, that's incredible. And I'll show you, when we get into the manuscript aspect of it, you'll see why that's incredible, because this is so close to the source that there's no room for legend to develop here. If we go on to the next, uh, no less a scholar than this, this guy, uh, I just learned about him recently, but he's very well known in the academic, um, uh, he's a, a, a scholar, uh, New Testament scholar and historian. His name's James D.G. Dunn, and this is his statement. This tradition, talking about this, this um, creed, we can be entirely confident was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. So this creed that Paul proclaimed to the Corinthians in 55, or in 51, wrote about it in 55, was established right after the cross, months after the cross. So this is not myth. This is not legend. This is them stating the facts of what occurred and what they believed right off the bat. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, here are a list of creeds that are spattered throughout the New Testament. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 3.16. And in most Bibles, these are actually kind of easy to spot. If you look at, if you have your Bible, uh, in 1 Timothy 3.16, does it look different you know, on your page, on the page of your, of your screen? It's usually indented or something to indicate that this is something different. That it is similar to what um, happens whenever we are um, seeing a quote from the Old Testament sometimes. But here it's, it's clear. It says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And this is the creed. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So, what did these creeds, what was the Christology? What did they believe? What did they profess? What did they say? Well, I'm giving you, I'm going to give you a list here, and if you look up these creeds that I just listed on the previous slide, you'll see that these are the things they proclaim. Jesus was Born in the line of, in lineage of David, he came from a town of Nazareth. John preceded his ministry, which began in Galilee and afterwards expanded throughout Judea. That Jesus performed miracles and fulfilled numerous Old Testament prophecies. That he attended a dinner on the evening of his betrayal. He gave thanks before the meal and shared both bread and drink which he declared represented his imminent atoning sacrifice for sin, that later Jesus stood before Pilate and made a good confession, which very possibly concerned his identity as king of the Jews. Afterwards, Jesus was killed for mankind's sin in spite of his righteous life. Crucifixion was specified as the mode of his death. 
that he was crucified by wicked men, he was buried, that after his death he was resurrected on the third day and appeared to his followers, even eating with them. Now, I've said this before, but just take, take note of this fact. Scholars who don't believe in the Bible, they don't believe in Jesus, they don't trust in him, agree that Jesus died on the cross. He was killed by Romans. He died on the cross. He was buried. And that he was seen after his death by his disciples. They don't argue with that. Well, if he was seen after his death, how do they justify, how do they deal with that? Well, in their infinite wisdom, they say that they, that the, the disciples had a mass hallucination. Yeah, because that happens all the time, yeah. There is no such thing as a mass hallucination. It's just like a dream. It's individual, and it's usually for just a short period of time. How many days did Jesus show himself alive? Forty days, right? So you don't have a hallucination for 40 days, if you're having one, you know. So it, it just it, it, it's amazing that they will concede all the truths but it really, what it boils down to is what? They refuse to bow their knee to the one who is Lord. Other facts. After his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven and was glorified and exalted. And the risen Jesus instructed that salvation be preached in his name. This event, the resurrection, showed God's approval of Jesus by validating his person and his message. And so here's my conclusion on creeds. Creeds prove early testimony of Jesus' miracles, fulfilling Old Testament scripture, raising from the dead, all within months of the events, thus ruling out legend and myth theories. Are we good on that? Okay. Let's move on to the next topic, which is New Testament manuscripts. This particular, uh, we're going to talk about this one a little bit more, but just so you know, this is the oldest manuscript fra- uh, fragment that we have. It is from a codex. A codex, I'll, I'll get into that, um, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But this is from the Gospel of John, and this is uh, front and back of a page. And it's John 18, 32 and 33. And on the other side, it's 18, 37 and 38. Next. So we're going to do some definitions here on the next slide. A manuscript, which is abbreviated MSS, is a handwritten document. For how many years did we have to deal with handwritten documents? Until the printing press was invented in 1450. Gutenberg. So all the history, all the documents were handwritten until that point. And these, the original New Testament documents were written on papyrus. Anybody, have you ever learned about papyrus and how it's made? It's made from a reed and it's beaten out and it's laid in different directions. It's kind of a, a, a fibrous, almost like celery kind of a thing, but... So they lay it out in different directions and they beat it and flatten it out and roll it. It's actually a pretty durable, it's actually more durable, from what I'm told, uh, 
from papyrologists uh, that's more durable than paper. But in the best of conditions, it typically only lasts about 100 years. It lasts longer than that in very arid climate. And guess where they're finding most of these manuscripts? They're finding them in Egypt. And the amazing thing is that they're finding them in trash heaps. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 people don't realize what they are. We'll get, into, we'll get into that a little bit more. So papyrus is the material that they were written on. And um, a variant, we're going to talk about variants, which is when you have more than one manuscript, there can be differences between the two in, in, in various differences. So a variant is something that any, that any difference between two manuscripts that are from the same, uh, supposed to be a, a, from the same source is called a variant, Okay. Now, textual criticism. I used to always think textual criticism was, was a bunch of critics sitting around criticizing. Well, that's, that's not what this is. It's not like food critics. This is, textual criticism is the study of copies of any written document whose original autograph is unknown or non-existent, which is the case that we have. Is the, it's non-existent. And for the primary purpose of determining the exact wording of the original. And then the last definition is this codex, which in the first century, remember how the Old Testament scrolls were scrolls. They were rolled up. Well, the Christians didn't invent this, but they made use of it more than anybody. It was a codex, which is like a book, where they started writing on front and back of a page that was bound on one side, and it was covered in a hardcover like a book. So they, they started making use of this and that's why we saw that one um, manuscript is written on both sides. So how many manuscripts do we have? Kind of important to know if we've got you know, some manuscripts so we can compare. How many Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all the letters do we have? And then how do the, does the New Testament stack up against other ancient texts with regard to manuscripts and the quantity? And what is the time frame between the events and the writing of, and the presence of these manuscripts? Now, just so you know, every original has gone to dust. We don't have any originals. And all we have, really, is copies. But we have not copies, but we have copies of copies of copies of copies. So this is where, again, skeptics say, well, if we've got all these copies, we know that they've been corrupted. Well, guess what? They're wrong. Um, I asked, are there mistakes in the New Testament manuscripts? I already kind of addressed that. Do uh, these variants impact this is where it really gets important. Do they impact any essential doctrine? If there's errors, do we want to know that there's one New Testament that says Jesus didn't rise from the dead and another New Testament that says he did? Wouldn't that be kind of important to know? If there's variance, there's supposedly differences. Were any essential doctrines affected? Uh, were any of the manuscripts corrupted by rogue scribes that decided to just write for themselves? Okay, here's the number. 
of the Greek New Testament, we have over 5,500 manuscripts. And in Latin, because Latin was kind of like, became the language of the land, there were, it, we have at least 10,000 manuscripts in Latin. And we have between five to 10,000 manuscripts that were written in Syriac, Coptic, and other languages. So in total, we have somewhere between 20,000 and 25,000 manuscripts. And in comparison, um, here's an here's a interesting fact. If you could wave a magic wand and all the manuscripts that we have disappeared from the face of the earth, we could reproduce the entire New Testament multiple, multiple times over just from the quotes of the New Testament by the early church fathers. It was quoted over a million times. So if we lost all the manuscripts, it could be rewritten by the fact that these church fathers quoted the New Testament and wrote lengthy commentaries on the New Testament. And um, like I forget, one guy wrote 15-volume commentary on the letter to Romans. I mean, this was back in the first and second century. These church fathers wrote prolifically. So we have all this evidence that's there for us to, to glean. But we have the manuscripts. They haven't been destroyed. This is how things stack up if you go to this. I don't know if you can see that. Okay. Anybody heard of the Iliad by Homer? Okay, well... We don't even know when... It was written in the 9th century, B.C. And we don't even really know where the earliest copy is. But we only have 643 copies. Uh, Herodotus wrote in the 5th century, 5th century B.C. And our first copy is in A.D. 900. How many years is that? That's 1,400 years. Gap between the writing and the first copy. And we only have eight. And Thucydides, same thing. Uh, Demosthenes, 4th century. And then we have the first copy in 1100. The, now Caesar, the, the Gallic Wars from Caesar, Julius Caesar. It was one, the 1st century BC and our first copy of his activity is AD 900. And we only have 10 copies. Livy, who was another historian, a Roman historian, wrote in the first century B.C. Uh, we don't even know uh, what their earliest copy is, but we only have 20. Now, the New Testament is listed here. It was written between 50 and 100 A.D., and our first copy is in the second century. Late first century, for one of them. Uh, and... Um, on and on. I mean, you can see that there's just, it's, they're anemic when it comes to copies. And here's the point, that if we're going to discount the Bible for its quantity of manuscripts and its time gap between the writing and the existence of the first copies, we have to throw out all of history. Because if the, if the Bible's not credible because of those reasons, then all of history has been wiped out. Does that make sense? So, and the thing of it is with these, with these, 
there's a whole lot of biases that are going on. You know, of course, I mentioned earlier uh, in one of the previous studies about the uh, the presupposition of anti-supernaturalism. You've heard of that, right? Where they presuppose that if it, it if it records anything supernatural, then it's not legit. The Bible is probably our in the world, the best historic document in existence is so accurate and reflects the accurate history of the world. And yet people discount it because it mentions supernatural events. As if they believe we live in a closed system and no miracles can happen. But um, they're, they're, they're wrong. So how many... Uh, this is a, a slide showing that we have 138,162 words in the Greek New Testament, but we have 400,000 variants. That means 400,000 differences. In fact, of the two closest copies of the New Testament, there's at least 10 variants per chapter. Okay? Does that freak anybody out? There's no, no two that are, that are exactly alike, that, that say the same exact thing. And so, next slide. Do these variants affect essential doc, doctrines of Christianity? The short answer, no. 77% of all variants are spelling errors. And again, if you're copying from an original, now think about this. The Original writings, there were original writings. They were copied and copied and copied. And if somebody is sitting there flipping through a scroll, because that's, that's originally they were scrolls, that paper, that papyrus is going to get cracked and, and, the, and letters are going to be harder to read. And so there's going to be some issues. Plus, some of these guys weren't really all that great of spellers. But you have things, just simple things like it may mention the Joseph and the Mary versus Joseph and Mary. That's a variant. Okay, and there's something in the Greek language called the movable new, which is like, you know how we say an apple or a pear? Whenever a word starts with a consonant, we put an before it. Well, those are, those are the kinds of mistakes that are, that are found in these manuscripts. There's only 1% of any variants that touch on anything that would be considered a serious doctrine. And an example here is that there have been some manuscripts discovered uh, of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 18, where the number of the beast is listed as 616. Have you heard of this, Tim? Yeah. So, rather than 666. Now, I don't know about you, but when you go to search for a new church and you look at what we believe, it, you know, about the deity of Christ, the word of God, do you, you find them listing the fact that they believe that the number of the beast is 666? No, that's not really what we would consider an essential of our faith. It's important, but it's not an essential. And so that's the kind of example we have of variants. Now, I want you to just bring up the next slide. Just click it once. This is a text. This is showing you what variants look like. Can you tell what... Uh, this is a message that I'm trying to send. Can you read what it says? Okay, I'll see you at church on Sunday. 
So you get what I'm saying, right? Okay, hit the next one. I'm going to try to correct my spelling. Okay, I'll see you at church on Sunday. Okay. What is the message? Okay, one more time. Okay, I'll see you. You, I'll see in you chart on Sunday. Okay. Uh, so I'm a little dyslexic, so sometimes I get things backwards and I can't spell all that great. So, but you still get the message of what I'm communicating, right? Okay, one more time. So I text a bunch of times to try to correct all my errors that I've, I'm spelling. And if finally, if you click it one more time, you'll find out what's my message. Okay, I'll see you at church on Sunday. So the, the beauty is that the more, var- the more manuscripts you have, the more you can eliminate the variants. And the fact that we're still discovering to this day manuscripts. I ran across this gentleman, and, and David's very familiar with him, and probably Tim. His name's Daniel Wallace. And he has a, uh, a group uh, that basically all they do is they're studying the manuscripts, they're digitizing the manuscripts. Because right now, the best, you, either you go physically to the, they're, they're in, I think, 253 different locations throughout the world. And if you want to see it, you've got to go there to see it. So what he's doing, there's some of them exist um, on uh, microfilm. But have you ever seen what microfilm looks like? It's really bad. So he's digitizing all the manuscripts. And you can go to his website. It's called csntm.org. And um, they have all the manuscripts. They have over 100,000 manuscripts in digital format. The pictures that I showed you. uh, If you go to this one here. If you go to the next slide. P-52. That's not an airplane. P-51 was an airplane. Uh, P-52 is the oldest we have. This is dated between 90 to 100 in the first century. And it is, like I said, it is the uh, partial uh, fragment of the gospel, and it's in codex form. And this is from the Gospel of John. And so, correct me if I'm wrong here, but don't we usually have a copy? That, that mean, If you have a copy, doesn't that mean that there had to be an original that existed before the copy? So, if the original was written before, it had to be written before 90. And we don't know when that was written, but we know that this is not the only copy that existed. And so you can see that that gap, pushing, trying to push it into the second century is just not there. And this one here, uh, this is manuscript P66. This is the Gospel of John chapter 1. There are some people that say that the whole idea of Jesus being uh, God in the flesh came like later, 170 or later. But this is in the early 2nd century, and it's a stack. If you look, um, you can see that it's a stack of scriptures. But this is John 1.1. 1, 1. And what does John 1.1 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have this early manuscript. That's the stack, the codex, showing uh, that the Gospel of John. And next, so the conclusion here is that 
do the vast amount of New Testament due to the vast amount of New Testament manuscripts, we're able to compare early copies with late copies, and that comparison reveals that there are no corrupt, uh, there's no corruption. This is the beauty, is that we have so many copies when we compare them. There's no the variants are not on doctrinal issues; they're on spelling. So it wasn't that we had a, a, a human, uh, you know, natural Jesus on some of the older documents, and it grew to this supernatural Jesus later. It's the same all the way through. The only variants are spelling issues and, and, uh, and a few word orders and stuff like that. And due to the fact that we possess early New Testament manuscripts as early as the first century, there's not enough time for legend to creep in. And then this last one here, the manuscripts could not have been corrupted by rogue scribes due to the vast copies. <clears throat> Some people say this, Constantine, like it was in the third century, ordered that, he ordered 50 Bibles, I think it was he the one that ordered 50 Bibles to be um, copied. But they say that, some people say that he sent these monks out to go and change the New Testament, to change the documents. And um, if you think about that, they would have to be able to change manuscripts to try to create a supernatural Jesus. They'd have to go find all these manuscripts and be able to change them without their work being noticed, right? They'd have to be able to lie and deceive in Coptic and Syriac and Greek and other languages and in, in, in Latin. Uh, it's just it, it, the idea that, that rogue scribes went out and changed the manuscripts is just it's ludicrous, and it's impossible. So what we have is a vast, and as scholars that study New Testament manuscripts say, they have an embarrassment of riches of manuscripts. We have more than any writing of ancient history, and they don't conflict with each other. And they don't, one doesn't show a, a, a natural Jesus, and the others show the supernatural. They all show the same thing that he lived, that he did miracles, that he fulfilled Old Testament, that he was crucified because of his proclamation, that he was crucified and buried, and then he rose from the dead, and he showed himself alive for 40 days, and then he ascended to the Father. And that's the message that was given to them. That's the message that started early on through creeds. That's the message that was written down in the New Testament, and that's the message that is consistent throughout all of history. Amen? All right. That's it.